الجزيرة بودكاست Taking center stage today is British Baroness Saida Warsi, a member of the House of Lords and a former chairwoman of the Conservative Party. Baroness Warsi was the first female Muslim cabinet minister in British political history, where she served as Minister of State for Faith and Communities and as Senior Minister of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs. She resigned back in 2014 in protest over her government's response to Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Baroness Rossi has been a leading campaigner against Islamophobia in the Conservative Party and British politics at large and has called for greater action to combat its rise. Does the UK political establishment institutionalize Islamophobia? And there really is no better person and no better political story to kind of answer this question or help delve into it than yours. Um, and before we get into maybe the recent history and your recent experience, I want to take a step back and start a bit about your early upbringing, coming from a Pakistani migrant family born in uh, Yorkshire in the north of England, uh, how that shaped you, both in terms of that kind of ethnic background and the religious identity as well. It was a really interesting upbringing. I'm one of five girls, uh, the second of five girls. And I think what shaped me were probably three very specific identities. Um, my northern working class identity. Uh, I was born the daughter of an immigrant mill worker. Uh, being born into an all-female family uh, and the connotations that followed that. Um, and, and thirdly, the fact that we grew up in a very, very pluralistic Islamic home with influences from so many different parts of the world and so many different um, theological versions of Islam. Um, and, and in a place um, in West Yorkshire, Dewsbury, which has a huge religious influence. Um, and I always say that it's fascinating because Dewsbury, uh, as a community, produced two very interesting phenomena. It produced... Sadly and tragically, one of the 7-7 bombers, uh, suicide bombers, it also produced Britain's first Muslim cabinet minister. So this, I mean, you mentioned one of five girls, Pakistani heritage or subcontinent Muslim. If we're going to go with the stereotypes that are often fueled and pushed by Islamophobes, well, Muslim women don't have a space in politics. They're, they should be seen and not heard or not even seen sometimes. But you despite those actually personified a different approach? What was it that pushed you to fight for justice, as you mentioned there, and um, to speak out? I, I think two things. My father came from nothing, um, and he, but he had a huge sense of belief, both in religion and, and in himself. Um, and he believed that anything was possible. Um, and alhamdulillah, he's still with us. He's in his 80s. He still works seven days a week. And he just led us to believe that we could be anybody that we wanted to be. Um, alongside that, there was, of course, the, the sense of uh, failure that my mum felt uh, within the Pakistani community, within the Muslim community, the mother of five daughters. She did feel that she didn't have a son. Um, she was told often that, uh, that she didn't have an heir, a male heir. In fact, my father was encouraged by some members of the community to remarry so that he would be able to have male children. And uh, one of the things that was put to him 
was that, uh, you know, who would remember his name if he didn't have a male child? Um, I often remind those uncles of mine now that most people now know my father as the father of Sayyid Avarsi. He didn't need a such. Were there any figures within Islam, past or present, that inspired you from that perspective when you're looking at women's role in society, when you're looking at that need to stand up like for justice? So we grew up in lots of storytelling. My, uh, both my mom and dad uh, are great storytellers. And so we grew up on, uh, on, on traditional Islamic teaching, but also stories around the Prophet Sallallahu life, about um, uh, the importance of strong women in his life, the importance of people like Khadija and Aisha, the people, uh, people like his mom, that, the role that they played in his life. And so I think we were always taught to believe that strong women were intrinsic part of Islam. And then more recently, certainly because of my Pakistani heritage, I mean, one of the very first Muslim premiers that I was aware of was Benazir Bhutto, um, who looked like my mom. She wore clothes like my mom, and here she was leading her country. And I often talk about the rights of women to property, uh, the rights to earn a living, the right to have your own investments, um, the right to your own funds to make those decisions, the right to keep your own name upon marriage. Many things which were denied to women under English law in, in, in my country for many, many years, but rights that were de- certainly given to me as a Muslim many hundreds of years ago. Um, so I think there is a bit of a, a misconception um, and often you know, what I find interesting when we talk about the Islamophobia debate is um, I've never known men become so interested in the rights of women as Islamophobes care about the rights of Muslim women, right? And, and if you look through colonial history, there's these fascinating moments where, uh, you know, there were parliamentarians in the UK parliament uh, during um, Britain's colonial rule um, who were denying the right of, of women to have the vote mm-hmm. in the United Kingdom um, during the female suffragette movement. But at the same time, they were advocating for the rights of Muslim women in North Africa. Um, and so I think that it's it's important when we talk about these issues. Are people raising the issue of misogyny and women's rights because they genuinely care about having a society where women feel they have equal worth and value? Or are Muslim women being used as a stick with which to beat the community? So I want to ask you on that. As a Muslim woman, what do you find more challenging to you? Is it maybe a misinterpretation or misunderstanding of Islamic law within the community? Or is it the Islamophobes and their narrative that actually tries to speak or claims to speak on your behalf, but actually is a lot more hateful and deterrent? as a woman who fights for justice, I feel entirely comfortable being a Muslim. And I feel that my Islam and my faith has made me the person that I am, this very independent, focused on 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 uh, injustice. Um, and, and often, you know, I would, I, I've had these confrontations with people to say that, you know, I've, why is it that when I talk about Islamophobia, um, when I talk about, you know, the rights of a Muslim woman within mainstream British society, you find my conversations difficult, but you're more than happy to encourage me to talk about. Um, I always say that as as a when I was born, uh, people said to me, "When did you start fighting?" And I said, "The day I was born." Right? Mm-hmm. 
I was born on the wrong side of the balance sheet. People in business here would understand this. You know, in many communities, women are seen as men are seen as assets. Women are seen as liabilities. Men are seen as contributors. Women are seen as takers. Men are seen as carrying honor. Women are seen as carrying shame. And right from day one, you start to fight to say, no, no, I have equal worth. I have equal value. Your choice as a northerner, as a Pakistani uh, uh, heritage, somebody from Pakistan, as a Muslim and as a woman, to choose to go into the conservative party from the face of it, it's a shock to a lot, right? Or some people yeah, say it's not the natural home. It's a good challenge. All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> how, uh, how did that challenge turn out is the question. In I the- think for a number of reasons. I am economically conservative. Okay. Um, I believe in a small state. I believe in a bigger society. I believe in a low tax economy. I believe that people who go out and work hard should be allowed to keep more of their money. So from an ideological perspective, I was a center-right mm-hmm. economic uh, politician. The fact that the Conservative Party, like most right of center parties, had a history of questionable uh, approaches to its uh, minority communities. You don't need to be politically women, correct here. You don't need to say Yeah, we had a bit of a racist <laughs> past, right? Let's put it out there. So, because, and as did lots of center right parties, by the way, across the world. By the way, to be fair, it's not just center right. We can go into the Labour Party yeah, in a little bit. We can spend you, a long time having the conversation. Just, but I think what, what attracted, what for me in the end attracted me was the fact that ideologically I sat in the center right space. Um, and, I wanted to be part of the change. And I certainly believe that if you look at the 2010 Cameron cabinet, which was what I was a member of, um, it was an incredibly empowering space. It was a, a, I felt it was a place where we were, um, uh, socially liberal, economically conservative. Uh, it, it, I definitely felt that I could be myself. There was certainly no aspect of my identity that I felt I couldn't bring to the table. In fact, when I turned up at the first cabinet meeting, um, in that, uh, May of 20, uh, of, uh, 2010, uh, it was a beautiful summer's day and I turned up in a pink shawl Um, and I felt no kind of sense of, um, uh, being out of place in doing that. So I definitely felt that there was a bit of a coming of age of, of, of communities, um, in, in that kind of era. Unfortunately, since then, uh, whether it's a Republican party in the US or I think my party in the UK, they've gone off on a, a bit of a tangent off to the right. Um, some would say into quite dangerous places off to the right. Uh, and those of us who are in the center right space will continue to fight to bring it back. I'm, I'm going to come to those, those, that shift and particularly after a couple of watershed moments. But I, I do want to come back to that first day of you going into cabinet. You said you didn't feel out of place. You're getting dressed and you're going to be the first Muslim in cabinet in the UK, a, a country with a history of essentially destroying Muslim countries through colonialism and, and, and occupation. A country at the time where, yes, there was a space for some Muslims, but the media was adamantly very anti-Muslim in a lot of its headlines in the way it was. Between you and yourself, when you're getting ready that day, how did you feel? Um, uh, it felt like a huge moment. Um, of course, you know, it felt like a bigger moment for my, for my father who had arrived as an immigrant. But I think also a real sense of pride about my country, um, about the fact that I was going to take, look, there were people around that table whose great grandfathers had been ministers, whose grandfathers had been ministers, whose fathers had been ministers. You know, my great grandfather had a carton bullock in the Punjab, right? My grandfather, 
decided to work in the mills. My dad was a laborer and me and this person were going to sit next to each other on two seats on the same table. I did quite well, actually. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you know, I felt that if, you know, that my country was a place where you could come from nothing and you could sit at the biggest table in the land. Um, and that's why I think... So there was a vindication I, to all your father's, essentially his life life story. You felt that you had actually delivered there. That and, I think it, and I think it was bigger than that. It was also about saying that, you know, what I find fascinating is this this notion of the Muslims are coming um, and they've somehow started coming in the 1900s. You know, the Muslims have been coming for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, there are so many things around the United States. In fact, there's some wonderful, wonderful stories about how, you know, the court in at the time that Queen Victoria was queen became incredibly perplexed because she requested copies of the Quran that she wanted to share with her grandchildren. And court became concerned that maybe Queen Victoria was about to embrace Islam. And so, you know, the Muslims were coming even back then. You know, whether we go to Liverpool, South Shields, Cardiff, you know, Woking, you go all over the United Kingdom. Kingdom, you know, from the burial grounds in deepest Scotland to, you know, right down at the bottom in the south, there are Muslim stories that go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. There's a f- wonderful story that I tell my conservative colleagues, much to their annoyance, uh, that uh, one of the very first mayors um, in the 1800s, um, a conservative mayor in the city uh, in near Manchester, uh, was... Um, a convert it was a it turned to Islam, and many many years later, his great grandson or his grandson embraced Islam, and there was this dirty secret in the family, and he went back and traced this history of this conservative politician who was Muslim. You mentioned uh, that feeling of pride that you felt sitting at the cabinet table that this space was that the country was giving space to everybody. But some would say that the success stories that have happened, like yours, have actually also created a massive backlash. So if you look at, for example, the return of like far-right racism in the US post-Obama as a response to having the first African-American president, there is also a view that the more visibly Muslim or openly Muslim members in UK politics has also created a backlash, not just outside, but institutionally. Your own party has refused to have uh, an independent inquiry into it. We've had a prime minister who has described Muslim women wearing niqabs as letterboxes. Uh, we've had, you know, council members on all sides of the political debate or or uh, 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 candidates who have had very uh, offensive statements. Do you feel that there was this backlash? And why is it that the, the, the establishment isn't dealing with Islamophobia the same way it deals with or reacts to other forms of discrimination. You know, when Donald Trump was about to be elected and everybody was saying, you know, this is terrible. And I said, yeah, this is terrible. But if he does get elected, there is something really quite interesting about dealing with an overt Islamophobe than dealing with a covert Islamophobe. Mm -hmm. Uh, For many years in politics, I used to look at the conversation that went on in think tanks and editorial newsrooms and in political corridors. And it was always really difficult to kind of put your hands on it. It was the sophisticated uh, bigotry, the kind of slightly respectable racism that went on. And that is much harder to deal with. When I was growing up, I'm optimistic because all the ugly views are out now, right? 
we can see them, we can deal with them, we can hear them, we can... I mean, I always say, you know, if you look at what what's happening, for example, in the Middle East at the moment with um, Israel and the election of the Netanyahu government, it is appalling news, but at least now we see overtly what people have been talking about, the rise of this terrible extremism within Israeli politics. And so I'm optimistic that this will be the last gasp that society is changing, that the younger generations see things differently, that Muslim communities are too integrated, too large, too young, too successful to be ignored, uh, too sophisticated, too comfortable, too part. These are our nations. I, you know, I, I, I love this interesting thing that's happening in politics at the moment. And it happens in the US and in the UK where politicians of color say things like, um, you know, I'm so, um, I'm so grateful to my country because of what, you know, it does for me. Um, I think we're moving beyond that, right? People are now saying, this is my country. What am I grateful for? I was born here. I was raised here. I have, my blood and sweat has gone into building this country. I mean, my ancestors were giving their blood and sweat for Britain before they even came to British shores. We built what Britain is today. We are not grateful for the fact that British Britain might say, oh, yes, of course, you're allowed to be our citizens. No, of course not. You know, we, this is our nation as much as, as it's anybody else's. And I think that, that, that is a confidence now amongst young British Muslims. And I genuinely feel that you can stand up and challenge these issues. Um, and if you look at, if you look at the fight on issues, for example, around anti-Semitism, um, they go back over 200 years. If you look at the fight for uh, equality around uh, racism on Islamophobia, in the United Kingdom, I think the first keynote speech on that was done in 2011 when I said Islamophobia has passed the dinner table test. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, there'd been some discussions around um, think tanks in the early noughties. But this battle is less than 25 years old. And if you think about the fact that we have now, the number of representation we have in both House of Commons and House of Lords and an agreed definition of Islamophobia, um, I'm, I'm going to be hopeful and optimistic because I think that's the only way we can be and carry on fighting this. We have run out of time, unfortunately. It's good that we end on an optimistic note. If there was more time, maybe I would have added a bit more cynicism. Thank you very much, Rana Saidavarasi. This episode was produced in partnership with the Islam and Muslims Initiative, an international platform that connects Muslims and non-Muslims in the realms of religion, politics, business, media, academia, and civil society.